0: Between you people, don't answer, don't talk to me that way. You're just a you're just a lightweight. Don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to. I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president that way. We need to remember, we're at war with a virus, not with one another, not with each other.
1: In-person schooling is so effective for all of our kids, but most especially for our youngest kids and our. Students with disabilities. We
0: have heart disease, we have cancer, we have COVID in 2020.
2: This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalpith broadcasting remotely. In the mix, you heard President Donald Trump lashing out at a reporter during a press conference. President-elect Joe Biden describing how he wants the country to unite to deal with coronavirus. Also, Fran Rabinowitz, the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendent's Director, also a former superintendent herself, explaining why she and others believe it's important for students to have in-person classes. And we heard from Governor Ned Lamont on the day when the total number of COVID-19 deaths in Connecticut hit 5,000. Now it's more than 5,000 deaths from this virus. That's a sobering number. Before we talk about all of that on the panel today, I wanna welcome back to the show, Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current. You can follow her reporting at Capital Watch on Twitter. Daniela, how are you doing? I'm doing well, how are you? Doing okay. Also with us today, Robert Cotto Jr., a Trinity College Educational Studies lecturer. You can follow him at Robert Cotto Jr. Hi, Robert. Hi, good morning, everybody. Great to be on the show. And Colin McEnroe. Thank you, Robert. And Colin McEnroe is here, host of the Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin.
0: Good morning, Lucy, Robert, and Daniela.
2: You can join us too, find us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. So let's start talking about uh, where we are right now uh, with the holiday season and the pandemic has made retail shopping feel a lot different, but it's not just different for customers, it's altered life for people who work in these stores and who own small businesses. I'm quoting from a current article from Ken Gosselin who wrote, sales in December are critical to the survival of independent stores and shops that have struggled after being closed down for nearly two months in the spring. Colin, uh, what are you noticing from small shops near where you live?
0: Well, let me just begin by saying that uh, if you care about small businesses, small uh, locally owned businesses, or even just businesses that employ local people, you kind of have to make a mental shift as a customer, right? We've gotten very used to this idea that like I look at something, I don't even have to say anything somehow or other, you know, something comes up on my phone and you know. Two days later, I own it. That things come very quickly. We're very used to that idea that we want something. We can. There's a blue truck coming up the driveway to bring it to us almost instantaneously. That's probably not going to work quite as well at the local level. You have to get used to shopping the way we used to shop. Now, I do think that very, very small businesses are doing their level best to make that experience safe and reassuring. But it's not necessarily something that they were ready for, and it's not necessarily something that they're good at. And I think probably the biggest problem, let's just sort of assume that you want to do kind of contactless shopping uh, from reasons having to do with the health of two members of my family. Mm-hmm. I have to be super careful. So I'm really interested in getting curbside if I can. If I could pre order and get curbside, you know, I'd, I want to do business with, with small local businesses. One thing that I've noticed, because I've been trying, I've been making a special effort over the last five days to do that. Is that you know? Unlike Amazon, their websites uh, they don't necessarily mm-hmm. exactly reflect what they have in stock because they just don't have anybody that they could dedicate for that purpose. And if they run out of something, they can't necessarily immediately fix it on the website. So you might be or pre-ordering something that they don't have, and then typically they will do their best to kind of turn that around to get a message to you to say, "Look, we don't have that. Can we substitute this?" Um, I'll just give a couple of quick examples here. Uh, I I needed dog food. (laughs) I got it from pet supplies. Plus the stuff that I ordered was not exactly what they had. They called right away. Uh, I did curbside Two very lively young employees came out with bags of stuff, loaded it into my car, you know, and I'd rather do that because they're, they have jobs here in Connecticut. Um, I did the same thing with, with, with Ace Hardware up in Windsor. I (laughs) needed those driveway poles so the truck knows where to plow. Um, once again, they did the they did it. They did a great job. You know, you deal a little bit more with the owner. It's going to take more time out of your life than ordering stuff from Amazon. But if you want to do it, I, I think you can do it and do it pretty safely.
2: Mm. Daniela, what do you think? Are you seeing uh, shops uh, where, near where you live maybe shifting to that contactless uh, experience that Colin was mentioning, or is that something we're seeing more at the um, I guess the franchise uh, stores?
1: Yeah, I think first of all, Colin makes a really good point that it's, it is it is local, locally owned businesses that we're talking about local businesses, but also businesses that employ people locally. And that includes, you know, places like the mall, places like Pet Supply Plus, places that are perhaps either local outlets of big national chains or franchises. Those are local people who, you know, live and work in our communities as well. And um, I believe are worth supporting as well. Um, I think when you're looking for, um, buying something locally and you have a shop that you like to go to, um, sometimes, you know, you don't go to the website, you just give a call and say, Hey, I'm looking for a candle for my mom. What new scents do you have? Or, you know, have any of those nice blank books in, you know, and you can just make that call and, and. Oftentimes you're talking to the owner or a clerk who has worked there for a long time and really knows the stuff. And they may recommend something for you that you hadn't thought of. And you get that sort of serendipity that perhaps you don't get online. It's maybe more akin to browsing in the real life store.
2: Mm. Robert, are are you seeing people you know or yourself focusing on ordering online from from small independent shops in our state?
3: Yeah. So um, I think what's fascinating is like we obviously have this big holiday season Um, And then, you know, Front Street in Hartford had a big outdoor sale. I think Daniela was doing some tweeting about it. And there was a story in the Hartford Current. But what I'm finding, I think, this year is more and more people like regular folks that you don't typically connect with small businesses selling artistic things. They're selling books. They're selling uh, handmade jewelry. They're selling a variety of different things that I think, uh, you know, says two things. Number one, there's a lot of talented people in Connecticut, but number two, people are struggling to like, you know, make some income in a time where mm-hmm. which is really difficult to, uh, to make, you know, make income. And so the holiday season is one way, obviously, for people to get in. But yeah, I've seen some fantastic, like handmade jewelry, people delivering books on bike uh, or on foot. Um, and like uh, Daniela said, you know, it, what's great is reach out to the, the people that are selling this stuff and ask them questions. What's new? What can I try? And I think that's what's 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 so fascinating about this season is um, this kind of uprise of just really, really creative, uh, you know, people doing new businesses.
2: Personally, Robert, what have you been doing that makes your shopping this season different?
3: Uh What we're probably not not going to the mall (laughs) but you know (laughs) if we do but we see something in the mall that we like you know what we'll try to do is call ahead see what they like maybe get outdoor delivery we've had a lot of outdoor delivery where we go to the place and just pick it up out outdoors uh to avoid being indoors and you know uh those sort of things i i really i i personally am going to miss going into the store and seeing what new things might be there that connect to people that i love so um, that that to me is going to be like the big the big differences.
2: Mm. Yeah, you know, we're hearing often uh, from independent shops and consumers making these uh, personal decisions, Colin. But do you expect to hear more from the governor or other local leaders about how to support these businesses? Um, I'm just curious what you think about the messaging there.
0: Well, look, once again, even though we have once again today some pretty good vaccine news uh, out of uh, Mm -hmm. Britain, this is still going to be a long haul. It's going to be, you know, six, eight months before you can maybe move around in a retail environment totally safe safely. And so, yeah, I think one of the biggest problems right now is there isn't a lot of centralized information about all this stuff. I, I think it probably would work better at a town level. You know, so, although obviously people do their shopping, you know, probably around four or five adjacent towns. But, you know, if, if you could know, if you could go to one place and just know, everybody in West Hartford or or Madison or Middletown or wherever you live, you know, here's, here's what they're doing. Here's whether you can do curbside. Here's whether it can be contactless. And, you know, another thing that they might think about since this is a long haul and probably should have been done sooner is setting up some kind of cooperative or centralized or maybe even town municipally driven delivery service. So I'm like by far the oldest person on the show as usual. Uh, so I remember the days when G Fox uh, dominated the retail landscape of Connecticut and they had these blue trucks. They had, there was kind of an unmistakable G Fox blue color. You just saw them everywhere because people would go to G Fox and pointed stuff and pay for it, but then not then go home and then the trucks would, would show up with stuff that would be really good to do on a collaborative cooperative level with like all of the stores in, you know, Enfield or something uh, so that deliveries could be done better. I, I don't know that it can happen at the gubernatorial level. And there's a piece in those in CT News Junkie right now, which Hugh McQuaid said it was actually really hard even to find statistics in any department of state government that would tell you exactly what's happening uh, to locally owned businesses, uh, to businesses in general in Connecticut, what the impact has been. I think probably should be done by local chambers of commerce or local governments or probably the two working together.
2: What about DECD, Colin? Is that something that that agency should take on?
0: Well, you know, I mean, uh, first of all, I think David Lehman is trying some stuff, but that's a little bit more of a long-term, it's a slow-twitch muscle as opposed to a fast-twitch one, right? The Department of Economic Development typically is working on a longer-term kind of project as opposed to trying to fix something that's leaking right now. So I don't know enough about how the department is set up under Lehman to know, whether that's something they feel they have a competency level to address uh, i do think the problems are are more local more granular probably addressed you know with something with a, with a finer tool than just uh, some kind of statewide initiative
2: Picking your brain on, on the air, uh, column because the commissioner of DECD, uh, Commissioner Layman, will be on where we live Friday. So I'll be sure to, to ask him that. But let's move on and talk about what we are hearing from the governor when we're thinking about uh, COVID-19 and uh, bad actors, so to speak. Uh, governor Lamont recently announcing he's using his emergency powers to increase the fines for businesses that violate state rules put in place to slow the transmission of the virus. Egregious violations could now carry a fine of up to $10,000. Instead of the previous 500 dollars and the rules could include limits on the numbers of customers or gatherings at commercial establishments that are bigger than allowed uh, Daniela, what do we know about why the government felt the need to put these this fine this high fine in place if it's just a uh, you know random uh, maybe small uh, events happening where people may not be following the rules
1: i i think it just once again speaks to the seriousness of this and the fact that they they are, um, you know, using every tool in the toolbox to address it. I mean, you know, we've been living with this for a long time now. People are tired. Um, we're all tired. We are all want to get back to normal. <laughs> every everyone does. Um, but I think it just shows that, you know, we're not there yet, and we need to. Um, looking at the numbers, in particular, you know, we need to be extra cautious. And I think, um, you know, certainly. This governor and I think many governors, at least in our region, have taken this extremely seriously, regardless of party or uh, affiliation or anything like that. So this is just one more way to get that message across.
2: Robert, do you think it's a good a good approach?
3: Yeah, I think, uh, and you know, maybe this will lead into more of this our school talk a little bit later. But um, I think one of the things that people and are frustrated by, and this is getting picked up a little bit more nationally is a little bit of the contradiction. So I think people do understand the gravity of the situation and the need for safety. And on the other hand, you know, we see things that some things are open and some things are closed, right? So we see like schools and classrooms, these like big, big spaces, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but, you know, open, right? Or partially open. And then this other thing is closed, right? Or there's this rule for this thing and not that thing. And I think that's one of the, one of the issues that I see is there seems to be a little bit of a uh, a disconnect or like contradiction in some of the what, you know, what's open and what's not. And I think if it is about safety, then let's be consistent about, you know, what is closed and what are the rules and just give people more like structure, right? This is, this is probably a, a big key important time for everybody to be safe. And it's like, well, let's have consistency on the, the different things that are open or not, or what are the rules?
2: Mm-hmm. Colin, what do you think about what Robert shared? I
0: think what uh, Ned Lamont has tried to do is kind of have a pretty loose hand on the reins as much as possible, uh, and uh, lately his rhetoric has been about sort of letting people make their own decisions about whether where what's safe to do and where uh, where it's safe to go. But as far as the ten thousand dollar fine goes, look, I I think you shouldn 't ever have a policy don 't make a policy that you can 't enforce and don 't make a policy that you won 't enforce and I think the ten thousand dollar fine thing is largely symbolic i don 't think you 'll see a lot of ten thousand dollar fines handed down if they were, they would wipe out an awful lot of businesses in this very perilous economic climate. But you want to have that to say yes, as Daniella said, this is a serious situation, and you can 't you can 't violate the rules that we do have i mean robert 's correct in saying that it 's a little bit of a muddy picture. But a lot of that is because Ned Lamont has treated the situation kind of like he's, you know, mixing a Blue Oyster Cult album. So he slides the cowbell up a little bit. He pulls the electric guitar down a little bit. Uh, he's kind of looking for a mix and a balance. Balance is a word that he uses a lot. But part of that balance has to be, yes, if, you, if you're a total scofflaw about this, if you wantonly break the rules that do exist, you could suffer some pretty significant penalties.
2: Mm. There was some attention on a place in Manchester, I believe, the Hungry Tiger. Colin, what do we know about what happened there?
0: Hungry Tiger is kind of a, actually, it's a really well-known, long-standing music venue in Manchester. But their attitude there, pretty much from the jump, has been sort of screw this and screw your restrictions. They now have a banner up over the bar, I think, this is live free or die. So they got closed down, not by the state, uh, but by the town. Uh, and they are reopened now they've had some other instances where they earlier in the year also where they were accused of, of some violations uh at this point in order to get reopened, I think they've had to agree to do some um in house training uh and also some maybe some deep cleaning there um, th- This is an example of somebody the owner, Mr. Denley, does not take this situation particularly seriously uh he does not like the restrictions, and he's been pretty. Uh, Openly defiant, at least in the stuff that he says to the press uh, about how onerous he considers them to be. So, once again, now you've got a town saying, okay, well, you can have that attitude, but not without consequences.
2: Mm. Let's move on and talk about how different states and their policy leaders are. Thinking about dealing or even enacting some of the policies in this pandemic, uh, we know it's a national problem. And governing recently wrote about the struggle between governors and legislatures. Uh, Daniello, we've even heard that from some lawmakers in our state who questioned the number of, uh, of uh, executive orders that our governor has put out since the the beginning of this pandemic uh, back in March. And is that still a conversation that's happening among lawmakers? Uh, how much authority that the governor has? in this and how they're kind of been sidelined, so to speak?
1: Um, Not that I'm aware of. I I have not seen a lot of that. I mean, it's tough. The legislature is not in session right now. We just had an election, so we have a lame duck legislature. Um, I'm not really seeing, uh, hearing a lot about people um, criticizing. There There are certainly, you know, pockets of that. There are some conservative lawmakers who, are questioning the way the governor, you know, they're, they're suggesting that perhaps there is some overreach, but for the most part, I, we're certainly not hearing a lot of that from, from the leadership on, on either side, on, on either party, from either party in the legislature at this point, you know, the longer this goes on, who knows, you know, how this will kind of play out. Um, mm-hmm. But right now, and again, I think it sort of speaks to Colin's point before that, you know, um, this this fine and these restrictions I mean, thus far, at least, they have been uh, aimed at um, uh, the most sort of egregious violators like that place, that sports bar in Bristol, that when, you know, the the state took away their liquor license, but before they did that, the, the health department came in, the local health department, and the owner said, hey, you know, have a pizza and have some martinis and just chill and, you know, don't leave us alone. And, you know, that certainly is not the attitude that you want to see um, from a business that is, you know, accused of, violating these very serious restrictions. So I think it has been sort of more on the outer fringe of folks who have, Mm -hmm. you know, really flouted these laws or sorry, these orders. Um, And that's kind of what we're seeing play out, I think.
2: Colin, you uh, pointed us to this article and governing. I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of how this pandemic is still gonna be going on for several months and how uh, our governor and the legislature uh, will work together.
0: Well, first of all, um, you know I, I think most most of the time, particularly here in Connecticut people are willing to have Ned, Limon, Ned Lamont own this problem, right, uh, own both the success and the failure. Uh, I mean, I think he has been largely a very successful governor uh, in terms of his COVID policies, but even good COVID policies result in more than 5,000 of your citizens dying and, you know, increasing hospitalizations. Success, uh, it has been said, has many fathers and failure as an orphan. Uh, the COVID policy is sort of somewhere in between, but I, I don't think there's a huge initiative to say let us have more ownership uh, of this particular problem the other thing is legislatures just to go back to the image i used before are also slow twitch muscles executive <laughs> branches are fast twitch muscles if you need to do something in a matter of days or weeks or months you want the executive branch to do it as daniella can tell you it often takes the legislator l- legislature Two, three, four sessions to address something that's a pretty pressing problem. It's why, for example, we don't have legalized marijuana for recreational use here uh, in Connecticut. It takes them a long time to do something. So if you want a problem that, if you have a problem that needs to be solved in the next six weeks, don't ask the legislature to do it. They're not good at that. They're not set up to do it, but they also don't like being sidelined. They don't like being irrelevant. So every once in a while, you'll hear a little muttering or somebody will have a press conference. But, I don't think you'll see a big push for the legislature to get in and own this situation, a because they wouldn't be good at it uh, and and b because you know it's a complicated thing that Lamont has now really achieved a kind of ownership uh, over mm. Robert and I, you're
2: I think it,
1: oh, go ahead, Daniel. <laughs> I was just going to say quickly a good example of that, Colin, uh, where it takes the legislature an incredibly long time to do anything, and then oftentimes nothing comes of it, is the early voting. I mean, how many times had that come up in various mm-hmm. nations? And you know, let's do a constitutional amendment, let's do all this stuff. Then no excuse absentee voting, all these things, and then you know we get this pandemic, and the governor just signs a piece of paper, and all of a sudden you know it's it's done, and um, that was something that you know the legislature had tried to tackle for years and years and never got anywhere.
2: We're going to be talking about education after the break, but I want to ask uh, Robert Cotto Jr., who's with us. You're not in the capital bubble, so to speak, but when you look at uh, what the governor has done over the last few months and also uh, what your lawmakers are doing, uh, do you think there's overreach? I'm just curious what your thoughts are.
3: Overreach on the part of uh, of Of Governor governor. Mm
2: Lamont?
3: No, I think uh, think Colin's right that people kind of have... Uh, deferred more to the governor than usual. Um, I think, you know, as a compliment to the governor, in some ways, like you know, yes, th- th- we've been in this really difficult situation, and the governor is sitting down with people and listening. Uh, could be better, but obviously there was a, t- a article in the current yesterday or this morning about uh, meeting with h- uh, hospital doctors, right, and listening to them about how serious things are really getting. And so, you know, just kudos to the governor to some extent for sitting down people even when they don't agree. And I think people are seeing that, that he's not like a typical governor from another state that's saying, you know, nobody has to wear masks and we're all good and everything's fine. And I think the governor maybe has been a little bit more, you know, incremental, a little more open on on some of these ends. So, uh, you know, maybe that's what what the difference is, uh, is a little bit more of a, a measured approach.
2: You're hearing Robert Cotto Jr. on Zoom. He's a Trinity College Educational Studies lecturer here on The Wheelhouse, along with Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show, and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut, and Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current. We'll be back after a short break. We're going to look at an area of disagreement that still exists among a small group of people, and that's whether masks should be required in public schools to slow transmission of COVID-19. We'll talk about that coming up. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. With us today, Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current, Robert Coto Jr., a Trinity College educational studies lecturer, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. You can also join us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. Now, there's an anti-vaccine parents group and two Republican lawmakers that have been carrying out a legal fight against mask requirements in public schools, the Connecticut Freedom Alliance and state representatives Doug Dubitsky and Craig Fishbein lost an effort to get a trial court judge to undo mask requirements on an emergency basis. And on Friday, the mask opponents filed court paperwork indicating they'll try to get the issue before the state appellate court. Now, Jabitsky and Fishbein are lawyers. They're also representing a different group of clients. Who are challenging the governor's emergency powers in a separate lawsuit. Colin, I'll start with you because we know we've talked about this in the past. Uh, you know, as this group and these lawmakers found it uh, difficult to gain any traction in courts related to this issue?
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, they have a very uh, unsympathetic judge in Thomas McCosher, uh, who has not looked kindly on a lot of the witnesses they wanted to call or a lot of the arguments that they have made. Uh, And I think that's good. Thank you, Judge. Um, You know, what I would say, first of all, generally, is think of 2021 as the year of the mask don't think of 2021 as the year you're going to get rid of masks. Then if the year of the mask ends a few months early because the vaccines are are working and we're really kind of approaching something like herd immunity, you can be happy. But don't imagine that masks are going away. Now, in terms of the school environment, one way to think about this, it's sort of similar to the economy. People talk about COVID controls as if they are the enemy of the economy. They're the opposite. They're the way that you get the economy open and breathing. And the same thing is true with schools. The better your controls are, the safer the schools are the more schools can be open the the less distance learning or hybrid learning you have to do so you really want to optimize your safety controls your infection controls uh, at the at the school level and and masks are you know probably the the biggest and best tool that we have they're certainly one of the top 3 or 4 tools you don't want them to go away it's not a good lawsuit it's an irresponsible lawsuit and these two legislators who are doing this as lawyers i mean they're free to make money in their spare time however they need to or want to i guess but they should be ashamed of themselves
2: Mm. Daniela, what do you think in terms of uh, this fight and over school mask requirements is this a proxy for the issue of school vaccine requirements that that would probably be coming up yet again
1: yes I, i think i think you're absolutely right i think it will be. I just wonder what the general public's tolerance for any of this stuff is. I think, you know, Colin's definitely right. I mean, um, if you, if you want to get pulled back to normal, uh, you know, the fastest way to do it is to reduce the spread of the virus. Right. So wearing masks, social distancing, all those things that, you know, people, some people, small pockets of people are rebelling against, I think are the very things that are gonna get us back to normal. Um, I do, you know, thinking about masks, right? Uh, You know, remember after SARS in like the early 2000s and you'd see pictures from like Hong Kong or somewhere and people would be wearing masks. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, you know, that's kind of weird. Well, I wonder nowadays, (laughs) winter cold season, flu season. I mean, is anyone gonna get on a crowded subway or an airplane? Without wearing a mask in the future, I mean, it just seems like a, a good idea. Never mind COVID, just in general, you know, mm. in a crowded place, slip on a mask. It, you know, it's not very onerous, and it just takes, you know, two seconds, right? If it could help you stay, you know, get less sick even from more common viruses, uh, why not? So maybe masks are here to stay, at least in in some
2: contexts. Now, speaking as a parent, my young children—neither of them have been sick—and <laughs> mm-hmm. it's December second, so these masks are working at least uh, uh, for at them. Least. And Robert, yeah. I, Robert, I, I wanted to talk to you about you know what you're hearing and seeing with mask adherence in school. Is it accomplishing what it's been intended to do? Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, it, obviously, it's a mixed uh, mixed bag uh, mm-hmm. with the the effects. Not necessarily the, the issue of wearing masks. I think that's an appropriate. Uh, and kind of like a, a needed thing to do if you're going to have people in buildings, right? In in those kind of closed spaces, um, I do sort of have a lot of questions about why they're pushing this particular um, this particular lawsuit. But you know, people are wearing masks; they're doing their best. Um, I think that's that's the thing. I think there are some, on the other side, a little bit more of inconsistencies, right? Where, uh, like, for instance, uh, a, a couple of schools I've seen, uh, the doctors, I'm sorry, the nurses in the schools reminding parents, get your flu vaccine for your child or get whatever, you know, you have to have a, a ton of vaccines to actually attend public schools, right? There's rules about this. And so on the flip side, there's no vaccine yet for COVID, right? And the schools are open. And so there's kind of a little bit of a, there's some, there's some kind of like, Really mixed messages coming from within the schools, and so, to some extent, where, like I said, you have nurses saying, you know, don't forget to get your vaccines for your kids, but come to school with a mask to prevent this like pandemic disease. So it's it's there. There's some mixed messages there on that on that end um, that kind of need to be unpacked. But definitely, as far as wearing masks, I don't see uh, the the validity uh, in terms of like the need for it. I don't see the validity of that of that particular case uh, stopping the need for for masks. And on another note, uh, these particular folks that brought the lawsuit, they, they got a really difficult judge. Actually, uh, this particular judge was on the school funding lawsuit a number of years mm-hmm. ago. And his big thing was about discipline in terms of how we run schools. And so they kind of got maybe a, a sort of also bad luck in terms of like the particular judge that they got. Um, you know, th- this judge wasn't probably wasn't going to to go along with it.
2: So when we the pandemic started in March, uh, all schools in the state uh, sent children home and they switched to some form of remote learning. Uh, But now officials are more reluctant to close schools, even though we're in the second wave. And so, Robert, let's talk about uh, some of the the hard decisions that schools are dealing with in terms of uh, they know the benefits of of children uh, that are in-person learning, but also there are issues with quarantining, students and staff who may have been exposed to staff shortages it's it's a really uh, a tough time uh, to be an educator especially these days
3: yeah absolutely so uh just putting on you know my, my like you know being a parent hat um you know students i've seen so many like little notes of schools where one grade is quarantined or one classroom is quarantined or this particular individual and i think it's taking a toll on people if not from a like a health perspective um with the COVID stuff, but also like, you know, just a lot of uh, change, right? Every week, someone's on quarantine, someone's out, someone's in, and that's in the in-person level. Um, and so then putting on my kind of researcher hat, uh, in August, uh, as part of my work uh, as a researcher in education, I actually uh, conducted a survey asking people, why did you choose in-person school or online school? And so Crack and Hartford actually uh, offered those as options. and one of the kind of key things that I'm finding, looking deeply into the qualitative aspect is, um, there's sort of two camps, right? The two camps are parents that said, I want online. They were most concerned with safety in this particular uh, uh, situation, right? COVID pandemic. Um, And that's kind of like the big chunk of people that was saying safety, that's what we're concerned about our kids. We'll find childcare, we'll help online. Um, We'll do what we can. It was a very difficult decision. On the other hand, um, the parents that are picking online, the big thing that came from them um, was not just work, full-time work, right? So people were saying, Mm. um, you know, my child needs to be in school because they have to learn, but also because I have to go back to work full-time. And in fact, many parents um, said they didn't feel like it was a choice. They felt like it was a forced choice that they had to have their children back in school. So unlike some of the kind of like the interpretations you heard that, you know, it's the best thing for kids, it's learning, you know, most parents wanted their kids to be home, to be safe. Many parents had to to put their kids in school because of full-time work. And so that's something that we really have to reckon with when we're moving forward with the next, perhaps the next phase of like, you know, December, people are indoors, it might be more people that might get sick. And so we have to think about what's the next step if more people have to go online, for example, how do people deal with having to work as well?
2: Mm. Colin, uh, when we think about what the governor has really been pushing hard for schools to stay open, he just had Fran Rabinowitz on again uh, at one of these briefings earlier this week talking about the value of having kids in school. There's this initiative he's rolled out trying to get college students who are home anyway because of the way their schools are handling uh, COVID to uh, be substitutes for districts who are dealing with uh, staff shortages. What do we know about the risks of, of, of kids in school and what's a smart way to approach just As we know, cases are rising.
0: Right. So, you know, so far it does appear observationally that schools are, compared to a lot of other environments, relatively safe places. Let me offer kind of a general rule of thumb and say that one of the things that we're seeing is that the disease tends to spread in situations where people aren't being careful. Uh, where people are, for example, removing their masks, uh, people are letting their guard down in various ways, people are uh, getting together in large gatherings, uh, that's where the disease tends to spread. It's less likely to spread in a situation where everybody is on guard. So just the fact that you have literally, <laughs> we often talk about you know politics or something else as, as a kindergarten class with no teacher. Well, you do have a teacher here. It's a school. It's a class. Uh, it, it's a better opportunity, I, I think. But I think piled on top of that, we have to say two things. One of them is, and I think, Robert, I would disagree with you a little bit, that that immunization policies are in some way contradictory. In other words, you know, the rule right now is you got to get MMR and DTaP and all, all these vaccines that we have to make school as, as mm-hmm. safe as possible. And, and there is, at the moment, no available vaccine for COVID. Otherwise, you'd have to get that, too. Uh, but so... That's for starters. Do everything that you possibly can to make the school environment safe. But here I think we're going to see whether Ned Lamont's kind of, you know, mixing a Blue Oyster Cult uh, album policy is going to work. He goes for balance. And so you slide the cowbell up, you slide the vocals down, all that kind of stuff. I actually think if you want to keep the schools open... And this is what they did in, in most European countries. They said, we're going to prioritize that. And that means a lot of other sectors are going to have to take a hit. And we'll find some ways to, to dribble money out to you. But we are going to have to close down, for, for periods anyway, a, a lot uh, a, of the retail sectors and go to something more identifiable as a lockdown in, in a lot of other situations. So we can, A, get better, and B, Keeping the schools open, that'll be the thing that we try hardest to do. I don't see that kind of choice being made uh, by, by Ned Lamont. Now, whether he's right to do it his way or not, I guess time will tell.
2: Mm. And Danielle, before we head to break, you know, I've got to bring in the the teacher union perspective where they want to see a uniform policy and more uh, safety measures and uh, Don Williams telling our All Things Considered hosts, uh, John Henry Smith the other day, that they need to strengthen safety protocols, have mandatory random testing. But again, it doesn't seem like uh, the governor or the State Department of Ed's really budging on this.
1: Well, I I would imagine it comes down to money. I mean, testing, yeah, that, that would seem to make sense, but they can't even, the testing we have now is so inadequate just for the general public. How are you going to test, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of of teachers and school kids and and everybody else? I mean, the testing now, you know, you go for a test and you, you wait a few days or longer, a week, that test is Mm basically, you know, useless. So how are they going to ramp that up um, to to encompass the schools? It's, you know, perhaps a nice thought, perhaps, you know, in a perfect world, it would be good. But I I just, I don't see the infrastructure there to really be able to handle that, it it would seem Mm -hmm. like.
2: Robert Cotto, Jr., uh, final thoughts on on this piece about how to support uh, schools uh, in this pandemic.
3: Yeah, well, so, First of all, I appreciate what Daniela and Colin also noted. Um, you know, if if we're going to do in person, then what the unions and other folks in other countries are saying is there need to be rules for safety, right? Like classroom sizes, you know, masks, uh, Are is there testing that's quick and available? Uh, but if we can't do that, and I think this is kind of what the union's getting at, if we can't do those things, then we need to start thinking about, you know, more going online, um, and also helping people online right because that's going to be a childcare issue that's going to be a work issue. It's going to be a learning issue. So and my final advice is we need to like, like, not just leave this alone and let districts figure it out. I think we need mm-hmm. a little bit more uh, direction for the next couple of months.
2: That's Robert Cotto, Jr., a Trinity College Educational Studies lecturer here on The Wheelhouse. Daniela Altamar is also here, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Coming up after the break, a group of doctors have some advice for Governor Ned Lamont. Will he listen? We'll talk about that coming up. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. A letter now signed by 42 doctors and a nursing professor warned Governor Ned Lamont that the efforts to slow the spread of COVID-19 in Connecticut in the next few weeks will be crucial as the state tries to avoid overwhelming hospital capacity. Some of those doctors met with the governor on Tuesday. Now, they're affiliated with the Yale School of Medicine or Yale New Haven Health, but they're not speaking on behalf of the hospital system. Uh, Daniela, your colleague Emily Brindley had reported on this letter from doctors uh, talk about some of the reaction and how that meeting went what do we know
1: well the doctors uh in particular uh it seems are are seeking uh the governor are, are asking the governor to close uh two specific sectors indoor dining and gyms uh those things have remained open albeit with you know with restrictions and uh it's their contention that that those things in particular are risky. So it kind of harkens back to our earlier conversation about schools. You know, Mm -hmm. um, if you're prioritizing schools and saying that schools are, are essential and those would be the the last things we'd want to see, uh, close or go online or go to hybrid or whatever, um, then we need to make other choices. And uh, according to the doctors, those, those two things in particular, gyms and, um, and indoor dining you know at restaurants are are risky. Uh, they met yesterday uh, with the governor and um I don't think as of right now anything is going to change. Obviously, you know, we'll see. Um but uh it was, you know, by all accounts uh, a good meeting and productive meeting, but I don't think um, we'll be seeing uh at least immediately an order closing
2: uh, Colin, uh, on Monday. Oh, that's okay. Uh, Colin, on Monday, the governor said uh, to many questions about this, about closing indoor dining and closing gyms. Uh, he said less about what you close and keep open, but more about personal behavior. So, I guess the question is, if personal behavior is leading to these spikes in cases, you know, how should the state be responding?
0: Okay, a few things. First of all, about starting about a week ago and for the ensuing 4 or 5 days, we nationalized this disease in a way that we never have before. And and Connecticut, you know, has been one of the safer places. I don't know, nobody knows what's going to happen now. But my guess would be, my educated guess would be that Connecticut is going to be less safe uh, probably for the rest of the year than it has been for much of the time of this pandemic. And that has to be acknowledged ultimately by by Ned Lamont. Um, You know, in terms of what the doctors were saying, I think what they're really trying to convey is if things get a lot worse, probably the snapping point won't be beds or even ICU beds or anything like that. The snapping point will be the simple over Overwhelming uh, of of the human bodies working in our healthcare system, Mm -hmm. uh, that they are going to snap either physically or psychologically or both. That we are just going to we're not going to run out of hospital beds. We're going to run out of people to attend those hospital beds, Uh, and that's a serious problem. It's going to ultimately have to be dealt with. I think Lamont's response would be easier if there were discernible relief coming out of Washington. Mitch McConnell kind of woke this issue back up yesterday a little bit, but maybe in. A typically McConnell-like semi-nefarious way. But I mean, if, if Ned could say to local businesses, you know what, Mr. Jim owner, here's there's some money coming, there's PPP is mm-hmm. coming back at you or whatever uh, out of the federal government, but I am going to have to make a pretty hard decision. Uh, it would be easier for him to do that. I think at some level he knows he should do that, but it's hard to do it if you're just saying, so go broke, go bankrupt, there's nothing I can do for you.
2: To, the, to your point about the shortages of uh, hospital uh, workers and also their mental health, I think during the first wave, there were uh, people they could hire to help. But I don't think that's the case now, because what we're seeing across our country with this with this virus.
0: Right. Well, there were places that were essentially unscathed by the virus. So, yeah. Um, But those are places that are having the worst problems now. If anything, they'd want to borrow some of our people, but we can't spare uh, our people either. But the tables have really turned here. You know, the, the places that might have had available surplus workers to send to us are the places having the biggest problem.
2: Mm. Uh, Danielle, I think we've heard uh, Governor Lamont talk a little bit about using the rainy day fund, but not to help support businesses or nonprofits that are struggling, but it's to help with vaccine distribution. And so that's going to be an interesting challenge uh, as well, because we know so many people are hurting and need financial support while they wait for the federal government.
1: Yeah, and I I think uh there's there's a sense that we have to wait until um the new administration takes over and perhaps see what happens with the US Senate. Um but you're right. Uh there is uh there is the Rainy Day Fund here in Connecticut and he uh at this point has been uh reluctant. He was asked on, on national TV, I think last week or the week before on CNN um and uh he has been reluctant to use that at this point for uh, for that type of aid, but you know, perhaps we'll see um, where this money goes in terms of helping vaccine distribution, as you said.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, since we're talking about vaccines, uh, uh, Robert, uh, tell us so uh, you know your perspective of of what you'd want to see from the state to make sure uh, that uh, people, especially in communities of color, are not underrepresented when we're talking about vaccine distribution. Whenever that starts,
0: yeah. So there's been
3: some uh, interesting uh, parts about that where. There's been some um no there are if you look back in history there are issues with uh the way vaccines have been rolled out um in some cases tried out on communities particularly black communities and in, in some places puerto rico where it it didn't work out well right and so we have to be very careful and cautious i think the governor and other folks have kind of come to talk more a little bit about these issues but there's also some places where like there's still some Discussion about like, well, who gets who gets vaccinated, right? So if we're talking about race, right, um, the state has people of color in uh, in prisons, for example, right, mm-hmm. and those are a lot of people of color, like disproportionately. And so, do those folks get vaccines or not? Do you know do the the, the troopers get vaccines and not the prisoners? I mean. There's some really, I think we're coming up on some delicate conversations about how this is going to work and who who gets a vaccine. Um, particularly because you know when people get out of prison, where do they go, they go back home to their communities. And so you know, are we going like who who gets the vaccine and race? I think is a very delicate situation. I think we really need to grapple with it uh, moving forward in this next two you know next month or two as mm-hmm. we see you know a presidential shift and perhaps some federal aid coming in or not. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is this is definitely something we need to talk more about as we move forward.
2: And quickly, Colin, I know you have thoughts about uh, vaccinating uh, Connecticut residents, especially uh, congregate settings, uh, people in psychiatric facilities and prisons, they're often not thought of first.
0: Right. And I actually hadn't thought very much about this, uh, but it really there was kind of a push, particularly uh, on uh, Twitter this week. Some uh, advocates are saying, all right, let's hear something from the governor about this. Look, prisoners are obviously not where they are by their own choice, uh, and they are in a very congregate setting. The numbers in prisons of symptomatic and asymptomatic cases shot up dramatically over the last few weeks. Uh, there's definitely a, a problem there that's brewing. You know, I think there's no question that the first round of vaccinations have to go to health. Healthcare workers, frontline health care workers uh, need to go first. But then there's going to be a lot of other conver- conversations about vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. You could make some arguments about school teachers. Uh, I think it would be a mistake, uh, as Robert is suggesting, not to have the corrections department in there. I think guards and prisoners both should uh, be, you know, among the prioritized populations uh, for, for vaccines.
2: Let's move on to feats of Strength and Airing of Grievances. Daniela, we've got three minutes. Go ahead.
1: Okay. Uh, Feed of Strength, definitely uh, Connecticut's local merchants, as we talked about before. I uh, did put something out on Twitter, got an awesome list of really cool shops and went down to Woodbury the other day and just uh, hit some of them. Amazing bakeries, really fun local businesses. Um, so I would definitely encourage people to check those out because uh, there's some,
2: some cool things out there. Robert Cotto Junior. Uh,
3: parents, parents out there with kids uh, that are helping them either go to school or work online. Uh, you're really doing a lot of just like uh, work that needs to be done and it's appreciated and it's, it's challenging. So, uh, you know, kudos to parents out there.
2: And
0: Colin McEnroe. Uh, Some younger generation reporters that we've mentioned here, Emily Brindley and Alex Mm -hmm. Putterman at the Hartford Courant, Hugh McQuaid at the CT News Junkie, doing uh, terrific work covering uh, this crisis. Uh, I relied so much on their work even to get ready for this show. Also, Magna, Magna Chakrabarty's On Point episode yesterday, where she had the nurses on, was one of the most powerful pieces of radio I've heard in a really long time. Everybody should listen to that On Point episode.
2: We'll tweet that out at WMPR Wheelhouse. Thanks to our great panelists, Daniela Altamare, Robert Cotto Jr., and Colin McEnroe. Uh, Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back next week.